Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a little note from yours truly. Usually this section is reserved for opening guests who share a story that made them slow down, but we're six months into 2021 and I figured I would say hello and also share something that made me slow down and stop scrolling. So slowing down has become embedded in our vocabulary over the last year in a really profound way. But I find myself thinking about how it'll actually translate into tangible changes, especially when it comes to how we live, work, and create. So with that in mind, I recently stumbled upon an essay in The Atlantic called I'm Not Scared to Re-Enter Society, I'm Just Not Sure I Want To by Tim Kreider. In it, Kreider makes a case for what I think many of us are probably thinking about in terms of how we live life on the other side of this pandemic. The following passage is one that I found myself returning to more often than not in recent days. And he writes, Sometime in this past year, I just stopped caring. And now I can't quite remember how you trick yourself into starting again. You lure yourself into any major undertaking, a vocation, a marriage, life, with certain hubristic delusions. I will be rich and famous. We will be happy forever. This all means something. And once you're disabused of those, you need to find truer, more enduring motives to go on, if you can. Quarantine has given us all time and solitude to think, a risk for any individual, and a threat to any status quo. People have gotten to have the experience, some of them for the first time in their life, of being left alone, a luxury usually unavailable even to the wealthy. Relieved of the deforming crush of financial fear and of the world's battering demands and expectations, people's personalities have started to assume their true shape, and a lot of them don't want to return to wasting their days in purgatorial commutes, to the fluorescent lights and dress codes, and middle school politics of the office. Service personnel are apparently ungrateful for the opportunity to get paid not enough to live on by employers who have demonstrated they don't care whether their workers live or die. More and more people have noticed that some of the basic American axioms, that hard work is a virtue, productivity is an end in itself, are horseshit. I'm remembering those science fiction stories in which someone accidentally sees behind the facade of their blissful false reality to the grim dystopia they actually inhabit. The forces of money and power would certainly like us to forget all about this year and go back to exactly the way things were like a teacher intoning, all right class, back to your desks, while the first flurries are falling outside. Maybe we will. Insights are evanescent, and habit has a lead in inertia, but a lot of people went very far away over the course of this past year, deep into themselves, and not all of us are going to come all the way back. Wherever you are in your personal re-entry into the world, I highly recommend reading this piece by Tim Kreider. But for now, I just want to thank you for listening to Slow Stories. It means so much more than you'll ever know. While some stories remain in your heart, others simply make you laugh out loud. 
Jen's virus storytelling oscillates between the two. You may recognize Jen's work from her roles at revered comedic havens like The Onion and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, or from her bylines and publications like The New Yorker and McSweeney's. Most recently, Jen has channeled her editorial expertise into her debut book, Enter Big Time, Jen's comedic story collection that has received praise from industry giants like Tina Fey, Jack Handy, and Mindy Kaling. In Big Time, Jen lends her sharp and sometimes irreverent comedic voice to 14 jaw-dropping short stories. While these works may be fictitious in nature, Jen doesn't shy away from using humor to examine the facts of contemporary culture and in turn, her own life. For Jen, comedy often stems from a place of empathy and paying attention. And in this interview, Jen shared more about these ideas, along with the role of pace in her writing process, how she's defined her distinct comedic sensibility, and what instincts she had to unlearn to write big time. Jen was so generous with her time and energy, and I don't want to give too much more away. So without further delay, enjoy my conversation with Jen Spira, author of Big Time. My name is Jen Spira, and outside of being a writer, this so disturbed me. Like right before we started, I was about to scream downstairs to my husband, Tommy, what do I like to do outside of being a writer? And then I just was like, oh, I don't even have time. I need to figure that out myself. So, I mean, I'm also a big reader and that's kind of boring to say because it's so adjacent to being a writer. It's so it's not even adjacent. It's part of it. And I mean, I basically am always just reading, fantasizing about places where I want to read. Usually any trip or vacation, it's about the sort of like the heart of the fantasy when I'm fantasizing about what it's going to be like. I'm thinking of the place where I'm going to be, you know, sitting and reading. And I like to, you know, walk to the point of exhaustion. I love that walking for hours and feeling really, really physically exhausted. Um, God, I, I heard that Becky Cooper said she was really into cold water swimming. And I was like, Jesus, I need something good. Like, you know, that's a third thought thing. But I guess one hobby that's fun too. I've recently taken up tennis. And so I'm about to read the inner game of tennis and I'm not that physical of a person. So that has been um, interesting for me, the kind of like focus and the pushing everything else out, except for like being in the nanosecond of trying to, you know, hit the ball. So, ten- <laughs> so that's kind of something. And then I love touring historic homes. And, you know, whenever I can find a good one, I really do enjoy that. So Usually it has to do with history. I just went to the World War II Museum. It was the first museum I'd been to since the whole thing, you know, started. And it was just, it felt so luxurious to be like, oh my God, I'm going to just be in this museum and learn for like three hours. It was really fun. I was just picturing everything you were saying kind of stacking up into one house because before we started recording, you mentioned that you were apartment hunting and I just started to picture this brownstone with a tennis court, a reading nook, all the things that make you you. Oh my God, that's a beautiful image. And the only way that could I could be in it in reality is if I was like, you know, some sort of abused tutor or something that was employed there but yeah no that's a that's a really pretty image and speaking of images I think it's so interesting that you picture where you're going to read I'm curious like once you're actually in the spot that you're reading in can you focus or are you focused more on the place such a good question because you've totally hit on it no it's it's often quite distracting when I'm actually in the place that I fantasized about I just look up a lot and literally just I'm like, whoa, I'm here. 
and, you know, just look around because it will be an environment that's so kind of staggering and actually distracting. For our honeymoon, we went to Japan, which really blew my mind. As we were flying there, I just was like, I can't believe I'm flying to Japan. It was so exciting. And the thing that I was the most excited about was staying in a ryokan, which is like, it's like a Japanese bed and breakfast that in the countryside, it's tourists and a lot of Japanese tourists. And the one that we went to was near Hot Springs. But anyway, I was sitting, there's no furniture in the room. I mean, they roll out a mat you sleep on at night and they roll it back up during the day. And there were two chairs and it was raining outside and it was really an incredible place to sit and read. But yeah, I mean, I looked up 50 times just being like, I can't believe I'm reading here. But I was able to really dive into what I was reading. It was Carry On Jeeves by P.G. Woodhouse one of my favorites. And I know that doesn't seem at all germane to the place, but that was a really good reading experience sitting in that Ryokan when it was raining in the garden. That sounds incredible. Were you able to slow down during that trip? I was. I, I was because it rained all day. Rain is my favorite weather. And I was able to slow down because after I took some pictures and was satisfied that I kind of had, that can sometimes help even actually for me is when I'm in one of these fantasy reading zones. If I take a picture, I can just be like, okay, hey, I, I have that record that I can go back to and now I can just be here. And because it almost feels like I'm not soaking it up and appreciating it when I'm not aware of where I am, but then it's not actually fun until you do that, until you really do relax into it. And so I was able to relax into it. Sometimes just knowing that you're going to be there for a few days, that at least can let you kind of sink in. Not having anywhere to go for hours and just read. I mean, that's so great. It's the best. And I think it's only been underscored by the last year of just kind of having to sit with ourselves. And I'm sure we'll talk about that as the conversation progresses. But while we're on the subject of stories, I'm also curious if there's a story that you've come across, whether it's been an article, a poem, or a book that has made you slow down, but has also impacted your relationship with comedy. As all of your guests do, I adore that question. Yes. The story is called The Visitor, and it's by Roald Dahl. And I am new to Roald Dahl's fiction for adults. And it is, I am in this exhilarating stage, and it doesn't happen that often, of when you discover something that is mind-blowing and where you're really mad that you hadn't known about it. And you're like, what the fuck? Why didn't someone tell me to read this? And why isn't everybody talking about this? So I read it, I think it was a few weeks ago. And yes, it's a story. I forget when he wrote this, but he has a bunch of um, short stories that are, these are for adults and a few novels. And this one is about basically an eccentric, aristocratic playboy who is on this adventure driving through Cairo and his car breaks down. And he ends up being taken into this exquisite mansion oasis in the middle of the desert. And it's kind of like this, it, it kind of reminded me of the most dangerous game, even though it's it, it's it's not like that plot. And actually the most dangerous game and also a story that I will also mention because it was absolutely excellent. And I was not a George R.R. R. Martin fan. In fact, I didn't enjoy um, his writing. And there's a story that he wrote called The Sand Kings. And it's the same kind of thing where it's about an eccentric, rich, 
aristocrat and their sadistic hobby. Um, and that is an area that I find quite interesting. Anywho, yeah, the story of the visitor blew me away. And when I find these things that blow me away, they do really help me and inform my comedy writing, comedy thinking, because the first thing is that I find it to be kind of rare to come across something that is effortlessly gripping and entertaining. And that was what this story was. And that's what I so desperately want to do in my own writing. And what I take great pains to try to do is, is to give someone, my reader, that experience, the experience that I have when I read. It's only a handful of things where it's just like, oh, this is just, I'm effortlessly having the time of my life reading this. So that's that story, The Visitor. Yeah, I'll pause. I'm sorry, Rachel, it's too much. No, it, I mean, it sounds amazing. And I didn't know that he wrote for adults. Yep, he did. And I am pissed off. I am like, why were people not giving this to me? Yeah. I think too, though, that certain books and stories are supposed to come into your life at a certain time. It's almost like a little gift from the universe. I think you have to be kind of ready to understand. It has a lot to do with recalibrating your pace in order to recognize that. Rachel, that is so wise and smart and also just generous because I immediately go to anger. I'm mad at my friends. I'm mad at teachers. I'm like, why didn't you give this to me? But you're right. You are so right. I'm thinking of when I discovered P.G. Woodhouse when I was really deep in writing my book and then becoming obsessed with him and then learning about his work habits and his daily schedule and how that was so, that was, oh, so helpful to, mm-hmm. and yeah, you're, you're right. The timing can be important. You know, speaking of timing, I believe your arrival into comedy in late night, it was later. It wasn't a childhood passion. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. My friends who I met in late night, they seem to have a really similar trip to getting into comedy. And it started as kids and they were really into late night and they were into comedy. And I always had an alternative perspective and I liked things that were funny. And I think I made a lot of quiet, sarcastic comments to friends. But no, I mean, my my interests were in old Hollywood and like 19th century British literature. But Strangers with Candy and Kids in the Hall, those were two real big tentpole comedy things that I encountered as a 14, 15, 16 year old that really cracked my mind open where I was like, what is this? I love this, but definitely no connection in my mind to this is something you can do with your life. I'm assuming then in terms of what came first for you, it was a love of words versus performing. That's true. Yes, I guess the love of words is the is the primary and really essential thing, even though I am one of those people that has that childlike love of attention. And so I enjoyed performing and I enjoyed doing things that would sort of get me some kind of like happy, warm, fun, applause-like attention. But but no, the, the love of words was more essential. And just, just being one of those kids, it does seem like you really almost don't find writers who weren't voracious, athletic readers as kids. And so yeah, that certainly was my experience. Another thing we were talking about before we started recording was this kind of relationship with attention. You know, you held positions at The Onion and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I'd love to kind of have you talk about attention through those lenses. You know, what did you learn to pay attention to? And then in turn, how did it inform your relationship with pace? Mm. Oh my God, Rachel, these are good. Well, 
That's such a great specific question because paying attention and knowing what to pay attention to does seem to be the key to being successful on a writing staff. So at The Onion, the thing that I had to just pay incredible attention to was the tone. And it's like I came onto the staff there as a fan. You know, I was just like somebody off the street who loved The Onion and had a sense that I would be good at it and that I could do it, but I wasn't tested. And so my first six months there was really scary because my identity was, oh, I am an observant, funny, smart person. But then I had to put my sort of foot to the metal every day and test, are you really? Because you think you are, but can you do this? And so I definitely tried really hard. And trying really hard was paying attention to everything they did before. So I really steeped myself in the archives. And that was incredibly helpful. Then there's the finer and subtler layers of paying attention when you're on a staff. Because when you're on a staff, it's this like, you know, human organism, and they're your bosses. And your bosses are people with very specific set of interests. And when I first came to The Onion, the editor was this guy, Will Tracy, who's brilliant, who's a good friend now. At the time, he was just a smart, funny person that I was really impressed by and admired. And I learned very quickly what areas he was really interested in. And luckily for me, he had some really deep interest in old Hollywood. He had interest in pop culture stuff. And so I was able to see, oh yeah, I can slip things in because I know he's going to go for this because this is in his wheelhouse. So essentially being really familiar with the wheelhouses of the people that you're working for, if you're on a writing staff, oh, that's helpful. And it certainly was helpful being on Colbert because I started off as just a fan of his and was on the staff and was a fan from Strangers with Candy and the Colbert Report. But by paying close attention to him and his tastes and his likes and his sensibility, I was able to give him pitches that were really designed to delight him. And of course, I didn't get that right all the time. But um, being aware enough to know what your boss likes, that'll help you a lot. I'm also curious about fear. Are you ever afraid of the limits of your comedy? And I'm thinking specifically about the different sensibilities of viewers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think as we've gone through this time, it's been particularly polarizing. What are the limits for you? Yes. When I'm playing with something that's hot, yes. I guess I would call it fear. I have a real heightened awareness of how a joke is going to be received. What I'm really concerned with is that the intention of the joke is incredibly clear and the satirical target is also clear. And so what I get afraid of is, oh no, how could this be misinterpreted? Could you actually think that I just sound like someone that is making fun of something that I actually think is valuable and I'm not making fun of this thing categorically? I'm sort of poking fun at the edges of it, but not throwing the baby away with the bathwater. This book that I just wrote, it's not just topical satire, but there definitely is satirical comedy baked into it. I'm making fun of stuff that's really happening right now, like influencer culture and, you know, just like white millennial women culture and stuff like that. And so I am really aware of, oh God, I hope that I'm making my attention crystal clear. At Colbert, there were certainly times when I pitched a joke and maybe everyone in the room laughed, but then we wouldn't include them in the show because they were too dark and mm -hmm. they just went too far. And so what was scary about being on my own, writing the book on my own, was like, oh my God, no one's going to make sure that I don't get in trouble. So yeah, that was definitely on my mind in a big way. 
you know, I've listened to some of the other interviews that you've done and you do mention that in big time, the stories are also poking fun at yourself and your own sort of <laughs> tendencies. You're right. You're right. I, I was just thinking how everything that I make fun of, I know so intimately and really like the call is coming from inside the house. I <laughs> do these punishing boutique exercise classes that are insane. And that was the story bridal body. And I, there's a story birthdays. I mean, I am both the monster in that story and the hapless sweet loser in that story. I'm a person who just, who, who, I mean, I'm 35 and I still am this person that loves their birthday like a six-year-old, you know, and I have high expectations that are never met and I'm always disappointed and I don't know how to break out of the cycle. And I'm disgusted with myself for being one of these, it's my birthday week. It's my birthday month. I mean, I, I basically feel shame and disgust. And so I wrote a story kind of making fun of that world. And then there's a story about birth order. I'm the first one. I mean, it's me and my sister and I was the firstborn and I got all the special treats that you get when you're first. And I, you know, I had a canopy bed and my sister didn't. And I just think of, what if I was the second and I didn't get any of the treats and maybe I'd be a monster, you know? And so they generally come from places of empathy. And as silly as all these stories are, they come from very relatable feelings of anger and jealousy and anxiety. I think giving it that context probably helps. I hadn't read a lot of comedic short story collections and there's probably a lot to consider structurally too. Are you thinking in one lane more than the other? You know, when I'm actually doing it, I'm following what is fun. And actually, you asked a question earlier about pacing. And that was my biggest learning curve in writing this collection, coming from writing from TV and then before that from The Onion. Pacing was the thing that was just new to me because I, I'm coming from these worlds where jokes come really fast and there's very little stuff in between them. Yes, you have to have a setup that's really, really easy to understand. And and that was something that I kept. And the fact that that muscle was kind of strong was very helpful to me because making sure that I'm walking you through a story and hopefully you're there with me and it's easy to understand, you know, the world and it's, it's easy to understand the premise that served me. What didn't serve me was my instinct to pack something with jokes with no breathing room. So I had to constantly kind of like, sometimes I would feel like, oh, I've gone too long without a joke. But then I would have to stop and be like, no, this this is good. The reader is breathing. And also if the jokes come at you too fast, they cancel each other out. So I had to basically train myself to develop this muscle where I would, at a certain point, a character just goes and gets something from the fridge. In a comedy sketch or a topical monologue, like that's fat. And it's like, don't include that, you know? So I had to I had to learn how to do that. And that was the learning curve. And in terms of thinking about, okay, when am I weaving in the satire? When am I weaving in a joke? That was sort of like an unconscious kind of just like instinct for, okay, we can have something funny here. I always forget which one is right brain or left brain. I think it's wait, left brain is the analytical side, right? Yeah. Because yeah. it's to me, that's like, that's counterintuitive. So yeah, it's when I'm in there, it's not a left brain analytical thing. Is there one story in the collection where you felt like you were actively thinking about pacing? Yeah, that was probably the title story, Big Time, which is kind of like novella length. I was the most concerned with pacing on that because it is so long. You know, the shorter stories, you're keeping fewer balls in the air. I mean, when I'm doing these stories, on the one hand, I want them to be funny. And on the other hand, depending on how long they are and how much runway I have, I'm also telling a story that I hope the reader actually is gripped by and that has an emotional core. So 
since that one, the last one, Big Time was so big and ambitious, all of the real emotional stuff has to work. The idea was I wanted to tell a Hollywood rags to riches memoir and kind of deconstruct that genre and have all the fun that I could with the tropes of that genre, but tell a real story. And telling the real story is like making sure that you make your main character vulnerable enough to be likable and also including enough real stuff to keep the reader interested, even though I have all of this sort of funny stuff and sometimes silly stuff. So yeah, that that was by far the most challenging. Well, Big Time was definitely my favorite. Consistently just like, wow, <laughs> in the best way. And I think on that note, would you be open to reading from the story? Oh my God, absolutely. I was thinking that I might read from Birthday Girl, but now I'm just wondering, maybe I'll read just maybe the intro. Alrighty. Okay, so this is just the very first part of that story, Big Time. It's from the perspective of an actress in 1941. She ends up time traveling to the future, so this is her. Her name is Ruby. Look, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. Hollywood is like a big fat man with a snarl on his face and a knife in his hand, and he'll slash your ass to ribbons. Unless you're smart, that means you sleep with one eye open, one hand on your bankroll and the other on your gun. No one makes it out here in Tinseltown any other way. Trust me, Shirley Temple would tell you the same thing. I used to hang out with Shirley, actually. Taught me a lot. For example, always walk back to your ride with your keys between your fingers. That way, if you have to fend off an attacker, you can hit him in the throat and rip down through the jugular. Unless, of course, he can help your career. In that case, offer him a ride. And remember, saliva is a natural lubricant. Shirley was full of gems like that. But we're getting off track. My point is, anyone who's climbed to the top of the bone pile lives by the same rules. Never trust anyone and always look out for number one. Maybe you won't believe half my story. That's all right. I probably wouldn't believe it either if it hadn't happened to me. But I was sitting orchestra center for the whole thing and brother, this is exactly how it went down. That's a selection. Rachel, I didn't know I was going to read that part, but that's a selection. I think it's the perfect sort of introduction to your humor and also to the title story, but it's so clear that you have such a passion for old Hollywood. I didn't know that that was like a lifelong interest. And just as you were reading it, do you hear your characters speaking as you're writing them or do you get the words down first? You know, I don't hear it. And I'm always so interested in what other writers say, because it's this weird thing where you make up this world and then you really are in it. And it's so fun. Once you built it out enough, I finally saw, I mean, I've heard like writers who do, you know, novelists and, you know, talk about how they're friends with their characters, how they miss their characters and want to get back into the world. And I finally, when I started doing longer stuff, experienced that. And it's so fun. I don't hear a voice. It's, it's more than even hearing a voice because actually she's real. And so I guess it's like I hear it without having a, a specific voice in my head. She seems like a real person to me. And it's not more specific than that because it's so kind of, it's such a, like a weird amorphous thing, but she seems real. And that's like, I'm sort of like following her instincts. I'm always curious to hear about the sort of sensory process that writers experience when they're developing people and worlds. And yeah, it makes sense to me. And I think in terms of the world that you and I inhabit, which is very digitally heavy, you know, we're in this very interconnected age. I also want to talk a little bit more about how you show up just as Jen in this space. And obviously being very online has impacted the way that stories are told and perceived. And I know that you 
you have a big Twitter presence. And I'd love to have you talk about what you've learned in terms of the internet as a vehicle for either honing your voice or also building community with other writers. Yes. You know, it's funny because in the beginning with Twitter, I mean, I resisted Twitter for a really long time and I only started it when I was at The Onion. And I remember hearing some comedians say in passing, if you say you're a comedian and you're not on Twitter, then, you know, something's wrong. And, you know, you're kind of, you're not really doing your job. And I remember that kind of stuck with me. And I've always liked one-liner misdirect jokes. And Conan is really great at these. Like, I mean, I love Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, his are all in a very, specific um, zone. But, you know, he does really, really great ones. Jack Handy's deep thoughts really are great tweets and often misdirection-based humor. But I started it also not just out of a love of that that kind of comedy, and I do have like a pure love of those jokes, but I was at The Onion and I was aware that I wanted to get a job in TV. And I thought that, okay, maybe to be legit, I have to do this. So I started doing it and it felt like a chore. It immediately felt fun when even though I had literally, maybe I had, I don't know, 15 or 50 you know, but just a few followers. And a few of those people were comedians I really respected who I knew. And I remember the first time just one of them liked one of my jokes, you know, and I was like, oh, it felt fun. And it did feel like the best version of Twitter for a comedy person, which is a community of other comedy people. And you get to sort of try out material. And it felt like sort of impressing a friend that you respect. So that was fun. Unfortunately, now, I mean, for me with Twitter, I find it to be a time suck and a distraction that I resent. I never go to it thinking, I just want to have some fun and share a joke with friends. I do not go to it for that reason. I go to it thinking I need to maintain my presence on Twitter so that I can use it to promote my stuff. And I don't even know if it's really okay to be that nude, but I think a lot of people feel this way about Twitter. I mean, it feels like the real A-list thing that you're so known and established, you don't need to use Twitter to promote yourself. I mean, the thing is, when I sit down and I'm like, okay, I should tweet. And then I let myself think and I let myself, you know, write one, I can then delight myself and be like, oh, I really had fun doing that. I really actually like what that is. And that's always a fun little surprise. And I think that's a nice segue into one of the main questions that I like to ask on this podcast. You know, Slow Stories is really in reaction to everything that I'm unlearning about how we kind of move through the digital world. The element of distraction, of performance, where you're moving quickly, it is hard to discern what's worth it. And a lot of the times when I was working with other brands or just meeting people who were feeling the same way, I would think back to movements like slow fashion and slow food and wonder why we weren't approaching our digital habits in that same sort of context. And so something that I always like to ask my guests is what this idea of slow content or storytelling means to them. And so, you know, in the context of comedy or even writing a book, I'd love to have you share a little bit about what comes to mind. Mm. Well, for me, what comes to mind is the transition that I had to make coming from TV and then before that, The Onion, which is still just daily topical satire, and then expanding into fiction. I mean, artistically, for me, that meant 
essentially having no rules and getting to fully explore whatever my sensibility is and finding it. And I guess some slowness for me entered into it when uh, I left my job at Colbert specifically to give all of my time to finishing my book. And that was a hard decision that I made just because the job was so sweet. I adored Stephen. He was one of my comedy heroes. I loved the other writers. Some of them were my best friends. I would do a lot of fun on camera Brits on the show. But I decided that, I mean, the, the book was so exciting and scary and I wanted to give it my all and make it awesome. So I felt that I needed all that time. And then I have never had all that time. You know, I've always been used to working on my own stuff outside of my day job. And luckily my day job was also comedy. But for the first time when I left Colbert, it was just vistas of time, you know, that I could design in any way that I wanted to get this done. And that was coming from a really fast paced, go, go, go. You go to your job, you go work out, you eat, and then you have your two or three primo hours to work and that's all you have, there is something nice about that because there's a focus and an urgency to the few hours a day that you have. And it felt crazy to me to suddenly have all day to work on this. And that was scary. It of course felt like a huge luxury, but it was, it ended up being really necessary for me to go deep into the stories. I mean, I was able to have the luxury of time, which, you know, you need money to have. Because I sold the book, I was able to do that. Also, artistically, the pacing was unlearning my instincts. Not unlearning, but actually more like developing new ones. Because my instincts were joke, 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 very little interstitial tissue in between jokes. And so I had to develop this little baby arm and actually make it into like a real muscly arm, you know, to feel like a new kind of pacing, which was literally slower and had moments that were just like restful moments. I never artistically included those moments in my work before because I was working in mediums that had no use for them. So I had to learn that. I think you learned a lot because it was something that was enjoyable to read. Good, Rachel. That's so great. (laughs) I'm so glad. (laughs) It's probably a big sigh of relief as you kind of see it out into the world. And we were also talking about how you're in a position where you can choose what's next and the world's open in that regard. And I think with that poses a lot of questions. I'm curious if there is one question that you hope people start asking you more often. Again, I love this question too. When I was thinking about it, I really was racking my brain. The thing that I came to, a question that I love when other writers are asked, and I actually feel that it isn't asked of them enough. And I recently had the pleasure of of talking with Michael Ian Black, who's a comedian and writer who I really admire. And I asked him this question, which is, I didn't put it like this, but the question really is, how hard is it for you? How hard is writing for you? And how much doubt attends every stage of your writing? And I mean, I selfishly want that question asked of authors because I know any time an author that I admire lets it slip something that it's hard for them, I hook onto that like a piranha. Nothing is more steadying and motivating to me than when I find out that people that I think seem so confident and seem so fully formed on the page really sweated over it and had problems and had doubt because I have that. I actually recently have started sketching out a novel because to me, that's the next, the big story, big time was like, oh my God, can I do this? Because it's so much heftier and more ambitious than anything I've tried. And 
there was a lot of doubt in there. And then the thing is, I did work like a little doggy on it. And I ended up coming up with something that I felt like I cracked it. And I was like, Oh, my God, I actually love I love what it turned out to be. And to motivate myself, as I'm in this kind of idea gathering and sketching phase for the novel, and I'm also attended by so much doubt, I looked at really early notes for that story big time. And oh my God, I mean, it started from nothing. It started from the stupidest little meager scribbles. And it was actually both motivating and a little scary because I was, because it was like, oh, wow, that's how much work you have to do, you know? But I would love for more authors, if they could, to talk about when it's really hard for them and what they do to break out of when they're feeling really doubtful. I'm sure the answer changes. Absolutely, because it is true that when you have some successes, when you have some notches on your belt, you literally can actually say to yourself, I've done this before. But it's true that when you're first starting, you actually can't say that. And that's the scarier place to be. Yeah, for sure. And I actually only have one more question for you that I think is a nice way to kind of build on that question of process and admitting that it's not this perfect linear path. And that question is, why do you think slowing down in our digital age will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? I think as just a person, or certainly if you're in the arts and you're always trying to keep your mind sharp and observe things that maybe you could then essentially use later, I just find that stopping myself from randomly checking my email is indeed a project that I work on every day. And I find that if I'm able to do it, I can sink into experiences more deeply. And that is helpful because it's just you know, I, I don't meditate, but monkey mind, which is something that they talk about a lot in meditation. I mean, it's certainly not conducive to creative work and it's not fun to live in. And so I find that if I can stop myself from looking at my phone, it's helpful in creating art and then also just enjoying my day more. Jen Spira, author of Big Time. You can order Big Time anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Jen on social at Jen Spira. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in. 